Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12, and you'll also receive a complimentary six months of digital access to The Telegraph for free. Hello and welcome to The Edition Podcast, The Spectator's weekly look at some of the most intriguing and important issues within our pages with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. This week, we ask, where's Boris gone? We also talk about the surge in gang-related violent crime in Sweden. And at the very end, a look at why the Japanese are so much happier to wear masks. First up, whether it's a muddled illiberal approach to Covid, or a hardline stance on Brexit, or coming late in defence of Britain in the culture wars, Boris Johnson's record as Prime Minister seems to have been pretty lacklustre. That's what Fraser Nelson argues in this week's cover piece, and he joins me for a podcast now, together with Stuart Jackson, Director of Political Insight, the government advisory firm, who was also a former MP. So Fraser, to start off, can you give listeners a brief overview of how the Prime Minister has seemed to be missing in action? I think what we're seeing is a big difference between the Boris Johnson that his party thought they were electing this time last year and the character we've seen so far during the pandemic. For a while, it looked as if it was quite familiar that here was an essentially a liberal conservative. That's how he described himself. Somebody who was very reluctant to lock down, perhaps too reluctant. Britain was one of the last countries in Europe to do so. It looked as if Britain and Sweden were going to be the only two countries doing that. Then he changed his mind drastically, then he fell ill, he almost died in hospital. And there was a moment there where I remember, the spectator, we were actually literally having to do an obituary of him because he was in hospital the day before we went to press. We had all of these macabre covers, which thankfully we didn't have to use. But when he returns, there was a a brief while where people thought that, okay, he's not, he's convalescing. Of course, Dominic Rabb is in charge. But since then, there hasn't really been a return of the character that Tory MPs expected. Somebody who's able to raise the nation's spirits, to be leading, to be like bombastic, effervescent. And if you look at the debacle this week, it really is quite extraordinary. You've had a mess of the government's own making. The Prime Minister ought to have said straight away that the EU is threatening Britain that it wouldn't be able to send food to Northern Ireland, so we're going to use the flexibility within the deal to make sure this won't happen to us. Instead, Brandon Lewis was sent over to say he would break international law, and that sent the whole Commons into turmoil. I mean, not just that, but it triggered a whole chain of events that was needless because the government didn't intend to break international law, didn't intend to break its promises. Now, you add this to the exams debacle, you add this to a whole bunch of U-turns, of just disorganisation, and you're getting this mood, certainly amongst Tory MPs, that basically there's a lack of prime ministerial grip, and there's an absence where they think their leader should be. During the Black Lives Matter protest, for example, as I say in my article, it was a great opportunity for Boris Johnson, as he said when he was London mayor, to say, no, look at this incredible country of ours. We're Europe's most effective melting pot. We're the best country in the world to be black, as Kemi Badenach, his equalities minister, said. But he stayed very, very quiet. So he's avoiding battles. And now we're slipping into a second lockdown, it seems. 
with not very much clarity over what the government's trying to do. Is it trying to eradicate the virus? Is it trying to limit the cases to the capacity of the health service? We don't know because we're not being told. And the funny thing is, when Boris became leader, people expected him to be a larger-than-life character who would dwarf the rest of his government. At the moment, he's a barely visible figure at a time where leadership is sorely needed. Stuart, do you agree that Boris has missed some tricks here? I mean, just going down the charge sheet that Fraser lists in his article, one of the things is about Brexit. And as Fraser says, the internal markets bill doesn't seem to have been handled in the best way. You support that bill, but even you must agree that Brendan Lewis probably shouldn't have dealt with it in the way that he did. Well, there is uh, quite a bit of conspiracy about the delivery of that message, because if you notice, Brendan Lewis actually read the sort of offending passage verbatim and lots of people say that on that basis it was really the intention of number 10 right from the beginning to cause a stir over this i'm I'm not actually sure obviously there were 365 tory mps and each has got their own opinion on this but i do think that we have to remember mario cuomo said that you should campaign in poetry and govern in prose And the problem for Boris is that he's been hit by these two massive issues, COVID, of course, and Brexit. And if you add into that the sort of cultural predisposition that he doesn't really, his team at Number 10 don't really trust Parliament and that uh, the, the revolution sits with them in Number 10, you know, there has been a sidelining of his own party, even in Parliament then you are setting yourself up for a problem anyway. I agree with Fraser that the need to take a a line, a strong line in the culture war, is something that a lot of his supporters have been disappointed that he hasn't done. And I, I think he's absolutely right that the Black Lives Matter protest should have been an opportunity for Boris to have turned that issue round and united the country. And I think he did miss that opportunity. And also, I think... His cabinet is perceived, rightly or wrongly, as weak, and he could have done a cabinet reshuffle under the guise of COVID and promoted people who were stronger on the media. Uh, And he could have made peace, of course, with the One Nation group. There were good people on the backbenches that he could have held an olive branch out to in order to ameliorate some of this sort of institutional division in the Parliamentary Party. People like Damien Green, people like Robin Walker. These people could either have been brought back in or promoted. Uh, Maybe he will do that in the future. Fraser, the problems there that Stuart identifies, this revolution in Downing Street and a weak cabinet, aren't they problems of Boris Johnson or Boris Johnson's own making in that he sidelined a pretty powerful chancellor in Sajid Javid to come to have a slightly weaker one or what he thought was uh, more of a yes man. Downing Street, as we know, has been centralising power. So does Boris's effectiveness rely on good advisers, which he doesn't seem to have many of? I'm not sure I'd characterise it like that. I think Rishi Sunak is a very effective chancellor, as effective at least as Sajid Javid was. It's certainly the case that everything ultimately is down to Boris Johnson. You can't blame your advisers. But, um, but I remember about a year and a bit ago when I was one of the few people saying that Boris Johnson would be a good prime minister. Now, typically when people say, oh, he's just a, a drunken journalist, he's a sort of person who trips into number 10 on his way back from a long lunch, this isn't what we need. And I was saying, look, when he did my job, he was, he was brilliant editor. He got sales to a record high, even though he only came in like twice a week. But he was able to pick brilliant people to devolve to 
and inspire in them great confidence and managed to convey quite clearly a direction of where he was going. When he was London mayor, he did the same as well. He was in trouble, but then he gathered a whole bunch of deputy mayors after a bit of a false start to his mayoralty. And then he would make time for them every week. He'd do a one-to-one to hear the likes of Kit Malthouse and say, well, OK, Kit, what are your problems? And listen to him moan for a while. And, um, and the, but he would make sure all the people who was acting on his behalf, he knew what they were thinking, they knew what he was thinking, and he would govern in that way. His cabinets do not have this level of contact. They hardly ever get one-to-ones with him. Even they can't quite work out what direction his government is going in. So this isn't so much an, a problem of campaigning in poetry and governing in prose. I mean, Boris Johnson did campaign in poetry, but he's governing in riddles right now. What is the COVID policy? They don't know. What's the policy with public finances? They're spending so much, and yet he says there's going to be no austerity and no tax rises. Now, you know, those three things can't go together. So it seems to be as if as if he's looking rather forlorn. When he was in the chamber a few days ago, the MPs he bumped into, who spoke to him, came away really struck by how he looked exhausted, defeated, just stunned that such a confrontation could have come about in the first place. And the ones he speaks to, they will tell you that he's got no intention of leading a confrontational government. That's genuinely not how he sees it. But he's ended up with these confrontations, needless confrontations, ones that are self-defeating. We woke up um, this morning to find out a letter sent from American senators uh, basically saying that they were appalled by this internal markets bill and Boris could forget about his trade deal if that was how he's going to carry on. Now, I'm not saying the letter is definitive, but this is just an example of what was completely avoidable, just like the exams debacle was avoidable. And we simply aren't seeing the team building, the astute political judgment, but most of all, the direction, the speeches and the leadership, which he's supposed to be delivering. Maybe he's just a good columnist, but not a good politician. Well, if that were the case, he wouldn't have had eight successful years as London mayor. If he was just a good columnist, he wouldn't have won a referendum. He certainly wouldn't have won the mayoralty in a Labour city like London. He would not have won a majority of 80 seats. No other politician could have won a Tory majority in those circumstances. So let's get this right. He is an exceptional politician. He's achieved so much. It's just really off the scale in terms of, I mean, no prime minister since Thatcher has had a bigger majority than he's got right now. So he's an exceptional politician. But right now, we're not seeing those exceptional characteristics. Stuart, one of the exceptional characteristics we hear about Boris is how good he is at communicating. But he doesn't seem to have communicated too well in this pandemic, as Fraser suggests. Do you think he's got a problem delivering bad news, as he often has to in this pandemic? Yes, I do, because his natural uh, character is a can-do attitude, positive, humorous, uplifting, cheerful uh, I, and I think obviously COVID is, uh, is a generational challenge and he's had to deliver some pretty dreadful news in terms of health and the economy. And at the beginning, people cut him quite a bit of slack on that, and, but, and less so recently. But coming back to what Fraser said, he's never really been a House of Commons man. He's never been that clubbable. He's never been that comfortable in the Commons. And I think there is a difference between how he's perceived by the wider Conservative Party membership and the electorate. My view is that no one's yet crossed the Rubicon with Boris. They're not writing him off. I don't believe a lot of Tory MPs 
are looking at pe penning a letter to Sir Graham Brady. He's still polling at over 40 percent. He's still leading a party that a generation ago was told that it could never form a majority government again. Demographically, it was finished. It had no good ideas and, and, and all the rest. And I think whilst you've still got um, the baggage of the Labour Party around the ankles of Keir Starmer, and you haven't got a mayor culpa from that party, the Labour Party, and a coherent set of policies, then Boris will be able to survive and possibly thrive. My, my view is he has to develop at least one signature policy apart from Brexit that changes the weather that is remembered in 20 years time. And for me, of course, apart from the general concept of levelling up, which is a bit nebulous, I think housing is the biggest challenge he's got. And if he can do that, then he may have a much stronger suit as we go forward post-Covid and post-Brexit. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. But I also think that that is a bit of a problem. Every time he runs into problems now, his aides will point out, well, look, we're still ahead of the Labour Party. His personal popularity is still big. Even after this week's so-called rebellion, there was still a majority of 77 MPs. But they're thinking like campaigners there. They're not like people who are governing the country. If you're governing the country, then you can't really take comfort in how far ahead of a Labour Party you are. If you're still having a country which needs leadership, which is trying to work out what this Brexit thing is for, what's on the other side of the pandemic, that is a problem. He's not going to pay any personal penalty for the problems I'm outlining in this cover piece, but it's his supporters, actually, who are hurt the most. They can't work out why. Isn't there a vision for what's happening after Brexit? We're going to leave the EU in three months' time, just over that. What's going to happen at the other side of that? Once we do recover from the pandemic, how are we going to make a better country? If he was writing a column right now, if he was still doing a Daily Telegraph column, you can tell what he'd be saying. Where is the vision? This is what it's all about. We're coming through this for a purpose. And that's what we're not hearing from him now. His speciality is supposed to be rallying cries. And I could really do, as somebody who wishes him well and supports him, I could do with hearing a rallying cry now. I absolutely agree. But given the disaster of, you know, 8% of the national vote that Theresa May secured last year in the European elections and the near civil war that the Tory party suffered in the period after the referendum, you know, the Boris coalition is holding together. And, and naturally, they're going to be thinking in number 10... Red Wall Tories, uh, Leavers, traditional Conservatives, they're still backing the Prime Minister. I agree it's short term, but given the gravity of the challenges facing them, it's, it's understandable. I think he does, apart from a cabinet reshuffle, really need to think about a good old-fashioned keynote speech, not in somewhere like Dudley or Dewsbury, uh, in London, to outline his vision of our country's future uh, in next next year and in the future before the next general election in order for people to try and uh, imagine him or reimagine him again in the way they did when he became leader e even in the way that Theresa May was imagined on the steps of Downing Street in July 2016 when she gave a very positive an uplifting speech and people wished her well. If Boris can uh, reignite that kind of community feel and support, I think he'll be doing very well. But it is very, very tough at the moment with, with the challenges that number 10 are facing. 
Yeah, this isn't a crisis or anywhere close to it. He is still, you know, doing so much better than um, than several of his predecessors. It's just that he's not doing nearly as well as his admirers, and I'm one of them, thinks he can do. And that is really what I hear time and time again from people who wanted him to be leader, that where is the leadership? He can, he can give so much more to this country. He's capable of doing so much better than he is doing right now. Now, maybe, by the way, we're wrong. Maybe Boris's detractors are right and that he is effectively a sort of, you know, they say that he's basically a um, Brexiteer ideologue who transplanted his vote leave team into number 10 and they are collectively no more capable of uh, handling a pandemic than Nigel Farage is of conducting a knee operation. So this doesn't surprise them. But it does surprise me. Stuart and Fraser, thank you very much. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12 and you'll also receive a complimentary six months of digital access to The Telegraph for free. Next. You'd never expect checkpoints to control who can come in or out of a neighbourhood in a country like Sweden. But it has happened. And not because of coronavirus, but because of turf wars amongst gangs. Paulina Neuding writes about the issue in this week's Spectator and she joins me down the line now, together with Richard Milne, Nordic Bureau Chief for the FT. So Paulina, in your piece, uh, you start with an admission from the Swedish Prime Minister that we have an obvious problem. What is that problem? It's a problem of crime. We've had a a summer of um, really grotesque headlines in Swedish media. Everything from bombings and shootings to the murder of a 12-year-old girl who got in the way of a gang shooting. We, we really face two epidemics in Sweden. It's not just corona, it's also the crime. Why is this happening? You say in your piece, for example, that these, this is gang crime and from families from non-Swedish cultures. No, I, I talk about two different things, actually, in, in my piece. One is uh, the problem with, we have with uh, clans that have established themselves in Sweden. And uh, the other problem is the street gangs that mainly operate out of uh, immigrant neighborhoods. They, they inter- intersect to some extent as well, so it's not two entirely different things. But we have a problem with entire families who even, as the Swedish police says, they even raise their children to become criminals. Those are the clans. According to the Swedish police, we have about 40 clans operating in Sweden right now that are doing everything from... Uh, money laundering to trying to infiltrate the Swedish um, political system. Richard, in Paulina's piece, she's criticising the Swedish Prime Minister for not really tackling the heart of the issue, which is who these perpetrators are. Do you think it's time for mainstream politicians to start acknowledging that these are not white communities who are doing this? Well, um, as a humble reporter, I'm not sure it's my place to sort of give policy prescriptions to Sweden. I think what you can see, though, is that this uh, is a problem that's been building in Sweden for years and years and years. I mean, in the last elections a couple of years ago, the opposition politicians um, tried to use it. They said that the situation was as serious as in the 1990s when Sweden had a financial crisis, the government sort of said, you know, don't talk Sweden down. But they're, you know, now forced to admit that it is a huge problem. And 
I think again in 2015 when there was this big wave of immigration, Sweden took pretty much more than any other European country relative to its population. Afterwards, the same Swedish Prime Minister, Stefan Löfven, had to say that he was naive and it feels a bit the same there, that they've been naive again. He's had to admit in recent weeks that there is a link between immigration and crime. Uh, he denied that before. So this is, uh, you know, this is a situation that's putting a huge pressure on the government. And just to give you an idea, to put this in perspective, Richard, you're based in Oslo in Norway. Uh, Norway has about one gang killing per year. Sweden has about 40, just to give you an idea. Sweden has bombings on an almost weekly base, uh, basis. And this has no parallel in any other um, developed country in the world. I mean, I think that's the thing, is it's the... Um the banality of the violence in Sweden. I mean, you can wake up and you'll find, you know, five push notifications, a shooting in one town, a bombing in another one, etc., etc. And it's kind of every day. And I think that's almost the danger in Sweden is that people just have almost grown to accept it. And as Paulina says, I mean, it is extraordinary just how much has gone on. And, and, and the recent crimes... Are just you know really quite appalling and then you've also had I think uh, something that really caught attention is you had one of these clans that Paulina was talking about set up roadblocks in a suburb in Gothenburg and uh, you know controlled who could enter and who couldn't enter and uh, you know I think that just also speaks to um, the huge difficulties the Swedish police have had in dealing with this issue. The fact that there are new kinds of crimes as well, we have a huge problem with something called uh, humiliation robberies, where gangs of immigrant youths uh, target Swedish children and youths. They don't just mug them, but they're subjected to this degrading treatment in different ways. We had a terrible case just now in a, in a suburb to Stockholm where two boys were raped, stabbed, buried alive, subjected to, to all kinds of horrible things. And people have had enough. Paulina, how representative do you think these horrific crimes are? You know, the case of the two young boys who were raped and stabbed, it is really brutal and horrific. But is it really representative of a wider trend? Of course, it's hard to say, especially since we know that there are many cases where children are afraid to go to the police because they're faced with gangs or even clans that they don't want to challenge because it's too dangerous. But we do know that there has been a marked rise in cases where children are uh, victims of this type of crime. Paulina, in your piece, you dismiss the Prime Minister's suggestion that drug use amongst wealthy youths is driving the gangs. But drug use is climbing in Sweden, and the country's hardline approach to drugs presumably drives the trade underground in a way that's much harder to regulate, arguably. So why do you dismiss that suggestion? Couldn't it be because of an increasing drug demand? Well, Stefan Löfven was trying to shift the focus to affluent Swedish youth and their drug abuse, which is to try to make, uh, make this into an issue of, of class struggle, right? So that's something the Swedish Social Democrats are comfortable talking about, class issues. Affluent Swedish kids against poor working class immigrants. Obviously, the problem is much more complicated and drug abuse in a small, small, small suburb to Stockholm obviously can't account for 
for the fact that Sweden has 10 times as many gang-related murders than uh, as, as Germany. So it was a, an attempt to shift focus away from something he's very uncomfortable talking about to something uh, the social democrats are very, very comfortable talking about. Richard, do you think it's to do with drug use, as the Prime Minister suggests, or something else that's driving these gang violence? Of course, I mean, of course, demand for drugs is one factor, but we also have these neighbourhoods where a majority of people doesn't work, where welfare dependency is high, which is where you have clans slowly eating their ways into uh, the social fabric, where clans and clan structures really challenge the Swedish state as for when it comes to um, uh, monopoly of violence, for instance. So to just look at the issue of drug abuse is to make it, uh, that that's simply too fa- facile, I'd say. I would agree it's a it's an attempt to deflect from a big debate going on. I mean, I think it's probably true everywhere. There's a sense sometimes maybe amongst, uh, you know, sort of middle-class drug users that it's, uh, I want to say it's a victimless uh, crime. But, you know, I mean, that there clearly are consequences of that drug use. But I find it hard to see that that's the main issue here, um, you know, when when there are people being shot and, and, and bombs going off. I mean, I think that there's a need to confront that and there's a need to think through what you have to do. And that that is a complex issue. I mean, that, that why is Sweden allowed there to be suburbs... Um, you know, there's a housing estate in Malmo, infamous housing estate, Rosengård. One part of that, I think it's over 90% of residents are foreign born. I mean, how is it possible to integrate when there are no Swedes to integrate with? And I think, you know, really stepping back, that's what's going on. Sweden is grappling with the changes in its society that, as Paulina says, have happened, you know, very quickly in a short space of time. And then compared with the other Nordic countries that still have fairly homogenous populations, I mean, Sweden has gone um, from homogenous to a kind of multicultural society probably faster than almost any other European country has done. But Paulina, you must be able to understand people like the Prime Minister's reluctance to talk about issues in terms of immigrants versus locals, you know, in a very crude way, because of the large minority of immigrants and the danger potentially posed to them by prejudice from the majority. Racism definitely is a problem. But this is something else that the Prime Minister is deliberately using a straw man argument. He's saying this is not about ethnicity, which no one really is claiming. And by saying this is not about ethnicity... He's implying that if you ask questions about this, if you ask questions about crime and immigration in Sweden, you're a xenophobe or even a racist. So don't, that's a way of avoiding scrutiny from journalists. And this has been a very, very um, effective strategy. And it, I mean, as a foreign journalist, it's, it's hard to report on these crimes sometimes in the sense that, you know, there's very uh, little information given out about suspects. Swedish criminal statistics, I think the last time they looked um, uh, at the breakdown on crime in terms of immigration or ethnicity, you know, it's more than a decade ago. And I think that sometimes, you know, there's this feeling that if you talked about this, 
that it would uh, create, you know, racism or anti-immigration sentiment. But, you know, by not talking about it, you know, you sort of leave the playing field open for, you know, all sorts of discussions, whether they're, you know, factually based or not. And, you know, I think um, a lot of people would find the Swedish debate sort of in the past very politically correct and counterproductive, really. That's really interesting. Richard and Paulina, thank you so much. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12, and you'll also receive a complimentary six months of digital access to The Telegraph for free. And last, as the pandemic goes on, even us in the West have started donning masks. But many people don't do it very happily. So in the magazine this week, we take a look at Japan, where writer Gary Dexter suggests that there's a longer history of mask wearing than we might have imagined. I'm joined now on the podcast by Lara Prendergast, our assistant editor who wrote a recent piece for us about floral face masks, and Jordan Sand, professor of Japanese history at Georgetown University, who's written on a similar topic for the Times Literary Supplement. So Jordan, to start us off, can you give us a brief overview of the history of mask wearing in Japan? Well, we're talking about wearing surgical masks to cover your face and or to cover your mouth and nose. And it appears that that starts in the Japanese case really with the influenza pandemic of 1918, which reached Japan 1919-20. There may have been some masks around before then, but uh, the only time it's clear that it became a widespread practice is in that pandemic. And in that, uh, Japan is actually similar to much of the rest of the world, where I think people or those willing to adopt it were wearing surgical masks for the first time then. What's interesting is the history that's that's uh, followed subsequent to that, in which they do seem to have really uh, rooted themselves in Japanese society so that it's much more of an everyday thing. Before the present pandemic, it was already much more of an everyday thing than, than it has been in the West. Is that process of it becoming everyday partly because of the aesthetic element to this? You've written before, for example, that you notice women wearing masks more, uh, and Gary Dexter points out, links this mask wearing to traditional taboos of showing one's teeth, which is seen as inelegant, for example. So is it notions of beauty that's making them everyday? So I don't know when this started, but it is pretty clear if you're you know, standing on a subway platform in Japan, let's go pre-pandemic because the pandemic has skewed things toward uh, universal masks wearing, that more women wear them. And I puzzled over that before. And then I saw a um, magazine survey that was done just a few years ago, asking, specifically asking young women about their mask wearing habits. And more than half of the women who responded said that they had on some occasion worn the mask for reasons other than health. And I don't think there are any men who are wearing them for reasons other than health. So there was something going on there, right? And there is something going on there. Whether they consider them pretty, I don't know. Perhaps the habit of covering up your mouth thought to be, uh, um, you know, modest, and a certain shyness and very pronounced uh, um, you know, sort of sense of personal space in crowded public places in Japan have promoted it among women in particular. And Lara, it's clear that having, in the short term that in the West we've had to wear masks, it's also become an expression of aesthetics. You wrote about floral masks recently for The Spectator and the problem with them. Well, yes, I mean, I pointed out that the problem was that they were quite difficult to breathe through 
Liberty <laughs> Cotton not necessarily being the most breathable fabric. But Gary mentions in his piece this um, sort of growing anti-mask movement in the West. And I got a little bit of a taste of this when I wrote about masks. I'm sort of ambivalent about masks, really, but I was accused both of being pro-mask and anti-mask. The pro-mask people were accusing me of being deeply irresponsible by even suggesting that any type of mask might have problems. The anti-mask people were suggesting that how dare I sort of agree that now we have to all wear masks, we might as well you know, make the most of it. So anyway, but I, but I found it really interesting in Gary's piece about all the kind of aesthetic reasons why people wear masks and, you know, benefits like, you know, during the summer with less pollen getting into your eyes and this idea that you could use it for sort of flirting with people. I've recently noticed friends talking about some of the kind of perhaps more trivial problems with masks in that, you know, someone was saying it's very difficult to wear lipstick under a mask. And I, I guess, to be honest, why would you wear lipstick under a mask? And then another friend was, had, had mentioned this thing, which I hadn't heard of before, which was that she was getting spots under a mask. Anyway, so there's obviously all these new things that we're all having to encounter. But yeah, I mean, I hadn't quite realised how heated the mask debate was until I wrote about it. And I don't know, Jordan, if you've, if you've found the same to be the case. Well, I was touched by your piece because, you know, uh, all of these uh, people making their home-sewn floral masks and, and offering them to others and so forth has been one of the appealing little human interest stories within this pandemic. And I haven't worn any of those handmade uh, fabric uh, masks myself, but it had occurred to me, actually breathing through cotton might be uh, rather more difficult, and you pointed to precisely that, and that was uh, poignant for me. You know, it does seem that the mass-produced, cheap, what is it? It's an, you know, unwoven fabric, accordion-folded uh, surgical mask, uh, does the job very well. Um, and I don't know if people are yet devising clever ways to make those more attractive. And Jordan, what about the point that Lara makes that this has almost become part of like culture wars, <laughs> a phrase that we know quite well in the West, but maybe in Japan they just don't see masks as something so ideological. You've written before about how bemused you are at how much anger there is about or how much dithering there is about wearing masks in the West. Yeah, no, that culture war is not taking place at all in East Asia, as far as I know. The one sort of mask war that did, did take place in Japan was when the Abe Shinzo government, this is the recently, the, the, the uh, prime minister who recently stepped down, sent two cotton fabric masks to every household in the country. And these masks came in for wide ridicule. They found the quality was poor, some of them smelled bad, all sorts of complaints about them. And it did seem particularly absurd because nobody really had any trouble getting masks and everybody was already wearing them. Do you think it was an outlet for disgruntlement at the government itself? Yeah, I do think so. And I mean, it, it, you know, it certainly didn't make much of a contribution to public health. So I, I can understand that people uh, uh, were unimpressed. Lara, do you think finally the West will ever accept mask wearing in the same cultural way that Japan has? Well, I, I mean, I think what's interesting in Gary's piece is that he talks about how it's considered rude not to wear a mask, not actually because you're protecting yourself, but because you're protecting others. And I do think, you know, the British are sticklers for manners often. So I think 
you are starting to notice people, if they're not wearing masks in shops, they're sort of getting glances and you know, there are lots of signs everywhere saying wear a mask. It's going to be interesting, I think, to see what happens over the winter because obviously we've all started wearing masks in the summer months and I think everyone's kind of broadly on board with it. I'll, I'll get lots of people saying, how dare you say that? But I think, you know, most people tend to be wearing masks in shops. But, you know, there is something quite ominous about, you know, someone, if you've got a hat on, sunglasses and a mask, you are basically very hard to identify. There's something a little bit ominous about everyone wearing masks and not being able to see people's faces. You know, actually, my baby was born the week before lockdown and she's now really used to people wearing masks. What I've noticed is people, people, when they obviously you kind of tend to smile at a baby people keep telling me that they're smiling but I can't see that they're smiling and, and Lily can't see that they're smiling so I think that's quite a strange effect of it that we sort of trying to see people's emotions is becoming harder it'll be interesting to see what the kind of what the long-term effect of that is Jordan and Lara thank you so much and that's it for this week pick up the magazine to read all of the pieces discussed as well as Matthew Paris on why the age of campness is over, Ursula Buchan on the end of village fairs, and foreign policy expert Devon Cross on what Trump has got right in his foreign policy. Thanks for listening and join us again next week.